digital therapeutics. It's the use of apps and technologies in conjunction with and potentially in replacement of more traditional therapies in healthcare, like medication. It's an exciting area to consider. I mean, what if tomorrow you went to your GP and instead of giving you a script or a medication to collect from the pharmacy, she gave you a prescription for an app to download and start using to treat the issue that you had? There are so many good examples of digital therapeutics already available today, but there's a long way to go until we see them used widely in mainstream medicine. Why? Well, let's think about it. The funding and the risk and the governance and the technology and the workflow and the adoption and the inertia, all of these messy things that influence adoption of technology in healthcare generally very much so impact digital therapeutics. Earlier this year, I attended the And Health Summit for 2022, where the focus was technology as a therapy, exploring how digital medicine and digital therapeutics are transforming healthcare. The event was hosted at FB Rice in Melbourne, and they had a raft of quality speakers in expertly curated panels and fireside chats and presentations to really unpack some of the important issues that shape how digital therapeutics are being used right now and what the future might bring. So in this episode on the podcast today, we've curated the best bits of the conversations that I had with speakers of the sessions. So I grabbed a number of them after they hit the stage or just before to get the inside word on some of the themes they'll be discussing and how they think about some of these issues. And as we head back into more and more in-person events, you're going to be hearing some similar episodes like this here on the podcast in the coming weeks. I think they're a great way to catch a number of speakers that attend these quality events and give you at home a digest of all the key bits and pieces about what you need to know and how you might think about it. And also it's a nice showcase of some of these quality speakers and discussions that happen at these great events. And maybe it inspires you to get out and attend one of them the next time it comes around. Thank you to the And Health team for giving me a space to record so we can present this episode to you today. So without further ado, collaboration, it starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech, a podcast and membership community about technology in healthcare. Here's your host, Peter Birch. In this episode today, you'll hear a number of conversations that I had with speakers at the End Health Summit 22 on technology as a therapy. The first speaker I caught up with was Adam Wardell, CEO of Provisior, and now General Manager for And Health Plus. In this chat, we explore what Big Pharma actually looks for when it comes to innovation in healthcare and understanding the priorities specific to digital health. We reflected on some of the points you might need to consider it as an inventor of healthcare innovations if you're thinking of approaching pharmaceutical companies. And we talked about the pharma industry generally when it comes to digital health and digital therapeutics and what they think about. Is it a gladiator-style, combative, winner-take-all situation? Or potentially, is there a more collaborative approach to portfolio strategy in the pharma world when it comes to digital health? Let's find out. My name's Adam Wardell. I'm the CEO of Provisior. We're a uh, health technologies commercialization studio. So there you go. What we're doing is really trying to understand how we can get these great inventions and innovations and put them into the marketplace in a way that we can not only get money for them in whatever way that looks like, but also make sure that they're sustainable and set up correctly and really out there helping create partnerships. Really important responsibility and task there. It's great to be chatting across the table. You're moderating a session shortly, so I've quickly pulled you in to have a chat about it. The session's called Clash of the Titans, Big Pharma on Digital Medicine. 
Gentlemen, The Way of the Future or a Necessary Distraction. So clickbaity title, good opportunity, something really for you to sink your teeth into as well. Tell us about what you're expecting from this session. Well, I'm a bit disappointed, Pete. You didn't do the, the sound effects. I'm hoping in post you can do this one. It's called the Clash of the Titans. <laughs> titans, Titans, Titans. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Um, look, it, it really is. An, it's actually a really exciting thing for me to do. So I feel like it's bringing some of my old mates together. Well, it's not really old mates, but you know, old competitors, let's, let's yeah. call them mates. Yeah. But it's being able to, to really get some of the big powerhouses in healthcare, specifically in pharmaceuticals, these multinational organisations, and we're really able to put them in the room and, and health give me the licence to be able to probe and prod. And it sort of allows me to use my insider knowledge from my old big pharma dates, but also really understand what it is that we can right size. Well, you know, what are these guys looking for? How do they understand what is going on in the marketplace? But most importantly, where is the focus? Where's the focus for digital health, software as a medical device, digital medicine, all of these aspects around our industry that we really want to understand that they prioritize? Because here's the, you know, one of the really common sequences that we look at is, I've got this great invention. It's going to solve the world's problem. Yeah. And then we try and connect it to a pharma organization that's not priority aligned mm. or it's not strategically aligned or effectively it's actually counterproductive to their portfolio and their business model. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll dig in today a little bit around that. Oh Yeah, I mean, from, from an outside as well, you think about if there are softwares or technology that have the potential to reduce the need for medication or pharmaceuticals, that's got to be a a threat or a concern to the pharma companies, but the role here interested in the space and they all kind of have a place. So it's, it's an interesting one in itself that they're seeing as it's something like the title says, is it a distraction or is it something more? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, look, there's also one of these things where from, and this is a, a little bit of inside insight, there is this really interesting tension. We know that this model of health overall is unsustainable. And it's not like it's not recognised inside. It, it definitely is. And it's not the thing that we won't play with something mm. because it's going to have a detrimental impact over on X, Y, and Z. That's not the reason. And and what we'll actually probably discover, because interestingly enough, the, the companies that have all been selected have a very collaborative approach. So mm. just to foreshadow where I think we're going to get to, and uh, again, I haven't clued anybody up here, so this could be completely off topic, <laughs> but I have this feeling that we will end up, rather than the clash of the titans and them fighting tooth and nail amongst each other, there's some really interesting areas of collaboration. I know that there's a couple of sort of collaborative deals through there. One of the organisations bought a massive company that we all know, flat, flat on. Um, <laughs> but interestingly, they bought it, but they maintained the business model of servicing other organisations and other, other multinational pharma. And, and that's a really interesting sort of change to the paradigm. We always used to think, and look, 30 years ago, it was probably the case, which was we'll fight tooth and nail for every prescription and every product and we're very brand focused. And I think the industry's matured to the point where we know we're not going to solve all of these problems together. Yep. And we're seeing more portfolio collaboration. We're seeing more joint collaboration around specific challenges. And under the hood, we're seeing really interesting investments from the corporate VCs into organisations that we really are knowing and loving and using as, as bellwethers in this market. Yeah. The next conversation I had was with Dr. Christian Theroux, Medical Director for Australia at Pfizer. To understand how Pfizer and other pharmaceutical companies think about the opportunities that exist with digital therapeutics. And in this chat, you'll hear about how patient demand and other key stakeholder requirements are driving the interest and adoption of these technologies to make sure they're on the radar for pharma companies. Here we go.
Krishan Thiru. I'm the Medical Director at Pfizer for Developed Asia, including Australia. Thanks for coming to have a chat. It's great to have you on the show again. You had a, you had a full episode a while ago, so it's great to see you in person now at the uh, the Ant Health Summit. You're participating in a panel session moderated by Adam Wardell about big pharma and digital medicine, about digital therapeutics. So in this space of digital therapeutics, what do you think is going to come out of this session or what excites you about, about all of it? Really excited to to join the session with uh, experts in the field across our industry and obviously startups and other companies that have a specific interest in this space. Digital medicine and digital therapeutics in particular is a real area of focus and interest, I think, for all pharmaceutical companies, but especially for Pfizer. And that's driven by a number of factors, uh, by patient demand. I think most importantly, we're seeing an increasingly connected, digitally savvy, empowered group of patients, but also by healthcare professionals and by government health systems and payers as well. And we see it as an opportunity to help maximise the impact of the medicines and potentially the the vaccines that that we make, improve on some of those outcomes uh, and really uh, move with what our patients are expecting and what our customers are expecting in general. Mm. I think it's a bit of a cheeky title for this session, The Clash of the Titans, which suggests there's a, a you know all or nothing, you know winner-take-all type perspective. But the sense I'm getting from speaking to people at this event and hearing discussions already is that it's just excitement, anticipation of, I guess, the role that digital therapeutics play in that point you raise, which is ultimately when it comes down to it, it's bad outcomes for patients. Yeah. Personally, I don't really, really see it as, as a competitive edge. I think it's a necessary transformation that all companies need to make. And you're absolutely right. It is about maximising health outcomes and patient outcomes and really maximising all of the R&D and all of the investment that we make uh, and put into our medicines. This really, I think, digital therapeutics complements those developments. And it's not about a competitive edge. It's really about moving into that space that our customers, whether that be patients, whether that be healthcare systems, whether that be healthcare providers, uh, are really demanding that, that we move in. And we're really excited to be at the, at the forefront of, of that with you know, a number of collaborations already across a, a variety of therapeutic areas. If you've been kicking around this industry a bit like me, or maybe even you're brand new to digital health, you've probably worked out that health tech is not an individual sport. Whatever you're trying to achieve, whether you're delivering healthcare for patients, or you're building health technology, or perhaps you're helping deploy solutions across health systems, you need a tribe, a community of like-minded individuals who just get it that if we're going to transform healthcare, then technology is going to play a huge part in it. So to learn and connect about health tech and level up your game, consider joining our THT Plus membership community. We've got options for every stage of growth, whether you're a solo individual or a startup or scale-up company. As an individual, you get access to our exclusive community forum, you get a warm intro to two other members from me each month, you get free access to our quarterly virtual summits and a bunch of other exclusive goodies. Companies can bring team members into the community, plus you get a presence on our website as a THT Plus member, you can post content like news events and jobs, and of course we love to showcase our members, so when you join as a company THT Plus member, you'll get to appear on this podcast with your very own episode. This podcast is made possible through the support of our members, it's literally the heart of everything we do, so consider joining as a THT Plus member, you can join anytime online, just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash THT plus. 
The next person I had a chat with at the And Health Summit on technology as a therapy was Jill Frayne, Deputy Research Director at the AEHRC, the CSIRO. In this chat, you'll hear about some reflections that she has on the concept of data ownership in healthcare, and it's not really a simple one to answer, and also how standards and governance are critical to ensuring data is in a consistent format so it can be used to achieve some of the objectives it was collected for. Here we go. I'm Jill Frayne. I'm the Deputy Research Director at the Australian eHealth Research Centre at CSIRO. Thanks, Jill. And so you were participating in a session just then titled, Whose Data Is It Anyway? Can you give us a spoiler alert then? Whose data is it? (laughs) (laughs) Is it that simple? I've got Uh, a sense it's not. No, I don't think it is that simple. I think it depends on the lens in which you're looking at ownership. I think I would use custodianship or responsibility rather than, Mm. than ownership. I think no one truly owns the data. It's not a legal asset. Yeah. Um, although it is a very valuable asset to hold. From a company's perspective, they want they are the cus- core custodians of the data. They probably have the raw data and they probably have a primary purpose for it. From a research perspective, from an R&D and innovation perspective, I think it's got multiple layers that go all the way through to the value to society of that data. Mm. And so we would like companies to take a lens of what can they do with it and then how can their growth contribute to the digital transformation of health. So how can they share that data? How can they give access to the data? How can they share the learnings and the insights in the data in a way that protects their business model but allows innovation to thrive in Australia? And so that ownership piece comes with a what do I want to do with it and what's the greater good opportunity for that data in terms of new therapeutics, new models of care, new insights into Mm. human behaviour and how digital therapeutics work. So I think it's got a, a, a different value depending on who's asking and from an interoperability and data standards perspective we would like to see the data that's being collected standardized so that the future potential can be made real. Yeah, I found that a a really good point that came out of some of the discussion there. Some of it was from a legal perspective about what potentially could and cannot be done with data. I found, I think it was the, the line of data about somebody versus data that's owned somebody and that concept and questions that that raise. But to your point about the importance of understanding what's being done with the data, because on one hand, any of the innovations and health technology that's being created and artificial intelligence and precision medicine, all of it needs data, while at the same time, the more data that's collected, the increased risk and all the business side. So I think coming back to that point is really important about what it's used for. Yep. And I think AI and, and intelligence at the moment is actually quite heavily biased by the data sets that are collected. Mm. And so they're collected for a particular purpose by in a particular segment, which means they're naturally biased. And so for great AI and precision medicine to thrive, we need to start looking at differently biased data sets, if that makes sense, to mm. try and look at, at how you smooth that out and how you ensure that your AI is not leaning in a particular direction based on what, on the underpinning data. And there's lots of ways you can do that. But the best way is to have more data that's concise and that's consistent um, in terms of how it was collected, how it's labelled and its approach to standardisation and so that the same clinical information and the same clinical endpoints are represented in the same way so that you can actually make inferred judgments based on, on what's in that data set. Next up is Michelle Gallagher, CEO of Opal. And I talked with Michelle about concepts like consent and ownership of healthcare data. 
There's a great example that Michelle speaks about, you'll hear in a second, about some practical uses of a risk register. So it's more than just a tool you use that you have to update for good governance and compliance. But we also reflected on what the future might bring for clinical trials and healthcare data and some innovative technologies like blockchain and Web3. Here it is. My name is Michelle Gallagher. I'm Chief Executive of Opal, and we're a company that applies artificial intelligence to improving clinical trials. And so improving clinical trials using AI, I assume a fair bit of data is needed for that. So your, your seat in this panel conversation was, was, is probably quite relevant. I think it's relevant because we're a startup. So mm. our core platform is called Open, O-P-I-N dot AI, Uh and it's a global digital clinical trial recruitment platform. So patients find us through social media advertising Uh saying, hey, are you interested in participating in a clinical trial? Would you like access to some of the innovative medicines that are coming down the pipeline? So patients sign up, they give us their data. So they answer a few questions about their health. Mm. They give us consent to try and match them to a clinical trial. And so that's the value that we offer patients. And the outcome of that is we hold a lot of patient data Mm. and that's a huge responsibility. Mm. I listened to the session that you participated in just then about who owns the data, the points that you raised around the practical importance of the risk register as opposed to just being this annoying thing that you do, I found really interesting. Tell me a bit more about the value that that plays in the whole process. I think that's the first time I've talked about the risk register in such an interesting (laughs) way. (laughs) Uh, Look, The the risk register is that thing that all businesses do because they have to. It's good governance and the board demands it and chief executives like me do it. But actually, this is an opportunity where the risk register plays a really important role in helping us to make decisions, not just practical business decisions or minimising or mitigating risk decisions, Mm. but also this helps us in our moral judgment. So we had the example of a company trying to sell me data Mm. that they go out there and and whatever crazy mechanism they use out there in the interwebs, they manage to to attract people who are interested in a clinical trial. They've got no intention of actually linking those patients to a clinical trial. They're data brokers. Mm. So they were trying to sell me data. And this is where the risk register did a really good job. So I was able to look at all of the elements around their offer in terms of cybersecurity, in terms of the integrity of the data, in terms of did they actually have consent to do what they were doing? And then morally, if I then buy that data, what's their obligation to me in terms of the integrity of that data, but also... Uh, does does consent follow through to me? Mm. So the risk register was actually a really good filtering tool helping me to make a decision about whether this was a good idea or not a good idea for the business and really to articulate exactly what the risks were. That was a great example that you brought up. Something that I really liked as well was you bring up, as you said, the, what was it, the infamous B or the dirty B word of blockchain, but but other innovative and forward thinking technologies that potentially have an opportunity to reshape how we think about some of these problems as well. Yeah, I think startup founders like myself often see a clinical problem and they look for a technology solution to solve it. And, that, and that's really a good thing, but it has the risk of being immediate. Yes. Whereas I tend to see that, but then 
then part of my role is a bit like a futurist. I have to imagine what the future might look like, Mm. not just from a patient perspective, but from a regulatory and a legal perspective, but also what technology could be applied to actually improve the outcome for the patient or for the customer or for us as a business with my shareholders. So I think blockchain, and I I cringe whenever I say it because you often see people in the audience just go, Oh, she said the B word. And so at the risk of throwing around this this magical glittery word of blockchain, I actually genuinely believe this, that if blockchain can compartmentalise consent and compartmentalise the data Mm. that a patient has given me as a custodian of that data, and it means that they've got transparency and a transaction record of when they gave consent who's been able to access their data and who hasn't. So my job is not just to imagine and develop a solution for now. My job is to imagine and develop a solution for the future. And I think the future is going to be one in which patients and individuals, I don't, they're not just patients, they're people, they're us, you and me, that we will wake up to the fact that our data is very, very valuable, that it tells a very personal health story Hmm. about us and if it's used inappropriately. So I think our data right or our our concept around data rights will evolve as we become more aware that companies are commercialising our information and that some of us, not all of us, will want a greater say in how that's allowed to develop. So I think our role as technologists is to future-proof our businesses. So as in five years, my technology is not superseded. As all technology, it iterates. There's version one, version two, version three. So so I don't see very far into the future that blockchain is something that I want to experiment with, but I think it actually will give the patient what they want. So it's that behaviour that I'm trying to plan for in the future. And so during the session, we spoke about consent as well. And so you raised some interesting point around that. Tell me a bit more about what you think around that space. Consent is, I think, one of those things that we talk about and, and often dismiss in the digital health space. It's what we have to do. But leaning into it here is thinking through in really informed consent and the chain of consent. Mm-hmm. So when you think about clinical trials, what I do, patients come through social media, they say, yes, I consent to you sharing my data with a CRO or a site for the purpose of a clinical trial. But we also ask for consent to have the information the patient gives us around their experience with a disease, de-identify it. I draw insights from all of that de-identified data of patients in the same boat, and then I can sell that to somebody. So the patient gives me consent to link up to a clinical trial to use the data insights, and they have the right to be forgotten under GDPR or some of the other privacy legislation and regulation, but they don't have the right to withdraw Uh, the data that's used in the insight. So I think this is actually quite a complicated field and and I know it sounds a little bit dry to talk about consent, but I think as a society, particularly in Australia, we're talking more and more about consent in lots of other facets of our life. So I think this is actually a really good one, particularly around digital health and all the digital technologies that demand and are obligated to get that consent. Yeah. There's no tricks anymore. I think that's the real kind of when it comes down to it. It's the use of data for the right reason, being transparent with what it is all yep. the time and, and consistently reminding. Absolutely. Yeah. Next up, I spoke with Josh Reich, CTO at Seer Medical. After his session that he had at the End Health Summit on regulation versus revenue and the paths to take when it comes to commercialising medical devices and digital therapeutics. 
In this one, you might reflect on not just the importance of having a solution that has really good science that can solve academic problems, but how you also need to have good first-hand understanding of what customer needs are. And having strong community engagement up front, check it out. I'm Josh Rich. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Sia Medical. Thanks for coming down, Josh. Look, you just came off the panel at the And Health Technologies Therapy session, which is that face-off between regulation and revenue and which path to take. So this interesting dynamic, which we'll talk about in a sec, but tell us a bit more about SEER and what that's all about. Sure. So I should preface this with the fact that I joined SEER about nine months ago, so I'm still learning myself. Cool. Um, so SEER is primarily in the epilepsy diagnostic space. We started about four or five years ago really building an, a, a way to do ambulatory EEG. So if you're someone with suspected epilepsy or someone who has established epilepsy but is going to get an EEG, the typical way that uh, you'd get your EEG would be going into a hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, you'd be staying in hospital for seven to 10 days, maybe waiting up to 18 months for a hospital bed, very expensive. Uh, we built technology and software to allow people to get that video EEG monitoring, which is the gold class way of diagnosing epilepsy done at home. Yep. That's the core of our business. That's where most of our operations are focused. We also have another business called Seer Health, which is a mobile app that currently allows people with epilepsy to track their seizures, track their medications and side effects. Yeah, cool. I didn't even mention this. As a, I'm still technically epileptic, although I've been seizure-free for five, six years now and been off Tegretol for 12 months. But That's was awesome. on for 12 years being epileptic, just randomly on the bus one morning, full grand mal seizures on my way wow. to the hospital, which then saw my... 12 years of being on medication up and down, random seizures during job interviews and other bits and pieces too. So this space I know pretty well. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, the, and the getting the EEGs yeah. done and having yeah. the technologies be able to do that at home is something really special. So that's um, something that no doubt the epilepsy community would have a fair bit of interest in. Mm -hmm. So this actually ties into something that you were talking about in your session as well, which is, you know, when you're going through that pathway of going to take a product to regulations, particularly in the, the health or med tech space, it's not a zero to a hundred kind of game. It's kind of, you talked about this step through of, sure. of gaining kind of relevance. Talk to me about that a little bit more. Sure. So uh, as mentioned, there are two parts of our business. I think building a medical device, like a diagnostic medical device, out of the gate, you need to meet your class two, class three, whatever it is. It's hard to go into the diagnostic space without regulatory approval. Yeah. On the Seer Health side, which is the application, we saw a really immediate need from um, really to support our diagnostic service just to allow patients to track their seizures. Yeah. And it turns out that most neurologists, as you probably have experienced, want them to write down a diary of what happened when, yeah. when did you change your medications, and being very much a paper-based thing, that can be difficult for patients to manage, difficult for neurologists to manage. Yeah. So we built an application for doing that. You'd mentioned like the value of community, and that's something that I learned in my previous business, which was an online bank. We had actually a really analogous story. We couldn't enter the space without getting regulatory approval in one shape or another. Mm. And so we knew we were going to have a multi-year journey from having the idea and being able to actually serve our first customer. And so the only thing we really could do was invest in community, and it turned out to be a huge driver of our future success. And so the thing that I've done now that I've joined a very different company in a very different space is I've tried to join communities like the Reddit Epilepsy. Mm. Community is fantastic. Yeah. And uh, there was a post recently where people, someone was asking, what's the worst thing about having epilepsy? And having been in the space for three months, I thought, yeah, I knew what people were going to say. The top answer was actually around EEGs. Yeah. I didn't realize how painful it was, for, particularly for people who are going through a journey of finding 
yeah. the right drug. Um, it's a very frequent process and can be really painful. But getting part of that community and learning what patients are actually talking about and what they care about can tell you a whole bunch. And tying it back to the revenue versus regulation thing, the thing that I really worry about looking at a lot of med tech startups, particularly digital health apps, is that they may have really great science behind what they're doing and they've come out of academia and they've solved a problem. But have they really solved a customer problem? Have they really solved a patient problem? And so I think there's a lot of really low-hanging fruit out there where you could help make patients' lives easier without having to go through the full regulatory journey, where you can really learn about patients, who they are as people, you know, what the anthropology is or the ethnography is of the folks who are involved. And that gives you a relationship whereby once you have reached a point of regulatory approval, you can then leverage that into delivering a medical device as well. I think a lot of people who haven't been in the world of app creation, whether it's health apps or otherwise, don't realize it's a really crowded landscape. You know, any great idea that you have, there's probably already 10 apps out there that in some way are doing something. Like, how are you going to rise above the noise? Like, that's a really hard problem. You think regulations are hard? Like, building an honest, genuine, empathetic um, relationship with a patient base, potential customer base, like, that's really hard. So the earlier you can do that, the more success you'll have in eventually getting regulatory approval and then getting revenue. Next up was Bob So, Senior Investment Manager at Brand & Capital. These were some interesting perspectives from someone who's both a clinician and an investor, considering how clinicians adopt digital innovations in healthcare today. Some really useful advice from Bob here about how to consider the way clinicians think about more traditional therapies and evidence and how these aren't quite the same when it comes to digital health, which might help explain the lower adoption rates and levels of resistance and change in healthcare. Also, we talked about that good old double-blinded random placebo-controlled trial and whether that's even possible to obtain for a new digital therapeutic. Here we go. Yeah, now, Peter, my name is Bob So. I'm an investment manager at Brandon Capital. I'm a medical doctor by training, became a clinical trialist, subsequently ran a biotech company before joining Brandon Capital as part of the investment team. Nice one. And so you're in a, you were just in a panel conversation uh, and the title of that was the clinician's view to use or not to use. That is the question. And it's an event about digital medicine and digital therapeutics. So it's almost like the reality check from the conversations that have happened earlier today about the potential and the opportunity that exists. But, you know, to, to have a bunch of doctors up on the stage and talk about the, the practicality side of things, what did you take away from, from that session? I think the session can be summarized up as there's a lot of potential in digital therapeutics or digital health, but the shape that it currently takes still takes a bit of getting used to for us clinicians to get used to what it looks like. The therapy that it delivers does not come in a shape that we recognize traditionally. The evidence generated is not one that we are used to seeing. So there's a fair bit of education that is required to get a lot of our peers across the line mm. to accept and adopt it as mainstream therapy. There's also the added complexity compared to a script for medicine that in digital therapeutic, that script looks different. Yes, and how does it impact the clinical workflow? How does it impact patient? How does it incorporate into the clinical practice of the hospital or the private setting that you're working in? All these are traditionally different. And for digital health to truly take shape and moving into the future, it requires all these problems to be solved. We think that there's a solution, 
Yes, and there are ways through it, but it still requires time, investment, and effort. Yes, in that session, you brought up the point around the more traditional way to give a lot more confidence in a solution would be, say, a double-blinded randomized control trial that says, you know, without a doubt, here's all this definitive, inno- you know, evidence that something works. But with innovative solutions that move so quickly, it's kind of not an environment to do that really easily. So, do you see a way out that's potentially another form of confidence and proof to clinicians? Yeah, I think for clinicians, the whole idea of the randomized, the gold standard randomized double-blinded placebo-controlled trial mm-hmm. came to try fully articulate the number needed to treat versus number needed to harm question mm-hmm. traditionally. Enter digital therapeutics or digital health into the landscape where it's a slightly different value proposition. The propensity for a digital tool to harm a patient is significantly or arguably a lot less than the potential for a therapeutic pill, a medication, mm. to, a medical device to harm a patient. And as such, as in one of our panelists, Dr. Chris Sia, was outlining the risk-benefit profile. Mm-hmm. In digital health, the risk is a little bit lower compared to traditional therapeutics. And so I think for us as clinicians, we need to put that in the right context and to perhaps consider a slightly lower burden of evidence, at least in the initial instance, to ask the question of, is there a potential therapeutic benefit mm-hmm. recognizing the harm is low? Yeah. It is almost impossible to run a placebo or a control arm the digital therapeutics while blinding the clinicians and the patient. It is not possible. So we have to just get used to the fact that it is difficult to generate evidence that way. So for us clinicians, how do we think about it differently? So there is a little bit of adaptation, a little bit of learning and getting used to that we all also have to go through. What a great way to think about it. Last question and point from my side. I I find it interesting that you come to this perspective both as a clinician but also through the lens of investment and growth and opportunities that that are created. So on one hand, there's an interest in seeing things progress quickly and grow significantly. On the other hand, the when in doubt, you know, do no harm and it's better off with what we've got rather than changing anything. So how do you kind of grapple with both sides of the coin there? At the end of the day, I think maybe it's my background of being a clinician. First, it's all about the patient. If there is no foreseeable patient benefit to any program, I don't think there should be a program. Patients or their carers need to benefit from whatever intervention we prescribe. And I think that's the gold standard that we adhere to or that we should consistently keep front of mind. Everything else may seem secondary, but maybe equally pivotal to ensuring that the digital health evolution, as you call it, continues to take speed and grow. But it is all predicated on the very first principle that you mentioned, do no harm, and only ensure that patients' needs are well-centered. Once you get these fundamentals right, as the rest may start to fall in place. It may take a different shape. It may take a lot of work. As in, but I think central to everything we do is all about the patient. This next conversation is with Dr. Mary Beth Branson, CEO of Tally. And I spoke with Mary about the multiple complexities and factors that drive the rate of change in health and adoption of technologies like digital therapeutics and what that might mean for technology companies operating in that space. Here we go. My 
name is Dr. Mary Beth Brinson. I am the Chief Medical Officer and Interim CEO at Tally Digital. Tally is a digital therapeutic for children from ages four to eight with attention difficulties. So it has a, an assessment for attention issues as well as a therapeutic, which is a training session which improves their attention overall. The importance of attention is not well understood in these very young children. The issue is that attention is a root symptom of many other serious medical disorders that take a really long time to diagnose. And if you can study attention, you can often hopefully pull people into the channel to get some help earlier. And that's why we're serving the four to eight year old. So attention is a root symptom for um, OCD and anxiety and autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. All three of my children nearly fall into that four to eight bracket. Yes. So uh, that th this resonates with me entirely and I can see the value in having a tool that can provide, it sounds like an objective measure around something that's typically difficult to objectively measure. Very much so. And it's interesting because in this young age, typically it is an experienced parent or a preschool teacher who has radar by the time, you know, they see 50 kids a year and they can just pick out and just recommend, you know, I think you might want to have Tommy see your GP. But unfortunately, you know, in a 10 minute visit, it's very difficult to say, yes, we want to push you into a pathway that's already crowded and has months and months of delays for assessment as it is. Um, and I think the thing that we know about childhood developmental disorders is there's not a single one of them that benefits from delay. And so there's a lot of benefit that can be achieved by using data to figure out how to access these children and get them on a therapeutic pathway sooner. So we're talking in this session, we spoke about the challenges for digital therapeutic companies. What are some of the takeaways you took from that session? Definitely, it's, it's not one thing. And I thought it was funny, the physician there um, said something that I think the rest of us can't say. But having worked in medicine for a really long time, you assume that everything about it is super modern, but it's not. And a lot of the systems that are used to support healthcare are not modern. And the fact that they had a fax machine was really interesting. Mm. I don't think my children would know what a fax machine was. <laughs> so I think that anytime you want to change how healthcare is delivered, unless something cataclysmic like a pandemic happens, it, it happens very slowly. It happens over many years of data gathering, many, many meta-analyses, guidelines change. You're talking 20, 30, 40 years sometime change in medicine. It's very difficult to get the way things happen to change. So I think that what my takeaway is, that it's not one thing that will help digital therapeutics. It, funding, if you don't get paid, you, do you even have a start? Mm -hmm. But the other thing is adoption, and it's adoption by the trusted advisors for tally of these parents with young children. If you think your child has an issue, yeah, well, I mean, these days, I guess you check Facebook and, and you ask, but you do end up asking a trusted advisor. It could be your the grandma, it could be your, G, but it's, uh, you get to your GP eventually. Hmm. And I think changing the view on options for people with issues when there's a digital therapy available, it's going to take a while. Last up, I spoke with Dr. Amandeep Hansra, no stranger to Talking Health Tech, founder of Australian Medical Angels and creative careers in medicine, among other things. And in this down-to-earth conversation, you'll hear a GP's perspective of the practical applications of digital therapeutics in primary care and how far we still need to go. And potentially there's a role that regulation might play in actually increasing the value proposition 
of digital therapeutics for patients. Something to think about. Here it is. Okay, so I'm <laughs> Dr. Amandy Pantra. I'm a GP and a digital health um Oh, this is terrible. <laughs> I don't even know what to call myself. Um, you're, you're, you're just a man deep. That's fine. That's right. Every, I, I, I just have my own, my own brand. You're, you're <laughs> in a man deep. Good. Um, hey, right. so you've, you've, you moderated a panel session today uh, and also participated as one of the speakers as well. The, the last session that you were just in was about the, the challenges that digital therapeutics companies face. And I'm pretty sure you're the only GP at this event or one of the only GPs. So, so flying that flag pretty high. So it's great to see the GP representation in a session about digital therapeutics. Tell us some things that you took away from that session about the challenges that digital therapeutics companies face. Thanks, Peter. I mean, it was great being a clinician on a panel full of digital therapeutic companies um, (laughs) because certainly you have a different perspective. I think what struck me as interesting was that some of the insights I was sharing in that session, there were some looks around the room of like people had never heard some of the things I was saying. They hadn't heard it before, which really made me question whether there is enough clinician engagement for a lot of these companies and for the industry generally, if some of the very basic things I'm talking about in a panel were were new things for, for this audience. And it really made me think that we do need to have more collaboration directly with clinicians. We need to have them in the room. And I think one of the other things we identified in that panel was probably the absence of having a consumer rep on the panel because a lot of the problems they were talking about around uptake and funding and, you know, acceptance of digital therapeutics is actually patient-driven and we need their voice in the room to understand what is it that we need to do to help adoption and uptake of digital therapeutics because it is quite a shift to go from being prescribed a drug to being prescribed a digital health app. And I don't know how many patients we've actually spoken to about that and said, how would you feel and how would you take that on? That point that you raised in the conversation about the perception of value that a patient may receive from being prescribed an app versus the more traditional walking out of an appointment with some medication or a prescription for a medication. Once we go to a GP, you you see some value there. So there's still a lot of work to be done in the translation of the value and the communication with patients that, like you say, probably still needs to be worked out to have some proper adoption, it sounds like. Yeah, look, I mean, it's interesting. I wonder whether sometimes consumers or patients pay to see a doctor because of a regulatory hurdle that they need to overcome to have a valid signature on a prescription. Because nowadays we get patients coming in saying, I know what I need. I just need you to sign a script and basically make it legitimate. And I think the problem with digital therapeutics is that if there isn't a regulatory barrier there and it's just you're going to pay for a doctor's advice, would people value that as much as here's a regulatory, you know, prescriber number and, a, and a, a signature, which then sort of lends itself to, you know, moving into the conversation of, well, should we make digital therapeutics prescription only where you can't actually download that app or you can't use it unless you've been to a doctor and had a script? And I think that would change the value question when you're talking to consumers and patients. And I think that's a whole world that we probably do still need to explore. 
resonates with me a lot because if something's too easy to access, it's like a lot of other things in life as well. If something is free, you don't value it as much as unless you kind of pay for it a little bit. Or So if they don't work for it, like if there's a little bit that you don't need to work for, that that's really interesting, that point. The other thing I really liked that you talked about was relating the concept of a telehealth consult and how that's been integrated in now and it's a consult, whether it's delivered in person or by virtual means, whether it's a phone or, or video. It's, it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for therapeutics to be something similar where therapeutics are delivered, whether it's digital or in more traditional means. But it, I've got a feeling it might be a while before we get to something on parity. Yeah, look, I still think we're a while away from there. I think that, as I mentioned, you almost have to mirror the process of drug development and regulatory hurdles, et cetera, in the digital space for it to follow that same pathway for you to end up in that position where it is just an integrated, normal treatment pathway for a patient. And I would love, as I mentioned in the discussion, something like the therapeutic guidelines to actually say first-line treatment is digital and you should try this, as we mentioned, this insomnia app first before you prescribe benzodiazepines or any other you know, drugs of addiction. And I think we actually, for some conditions, as a GP who gets a lot of patients with insomnia, I would love to be able to pull out my guidelines and say to patients, drugs aren't the first line, you know, mm-hmm. and sleep hygiene is obviously the first line, but the, the drugs aren't the next step. It's actually a digital ICBT program. And for patients to see it there in writing, Australian standard clinical standards guidelines. It's not and just this cool app that you saw once before. Exactly. It's like, yeah. And it's like, here, try this out. You know, my friend tried it. Yeah. And I think we really do need that validation for not just for the clinician, but for the yeah. patient as well, because I know that the, the rigor that medicines go through to be able to end up on a shelf and be prescribed. And I think they want to know that they can trust in that quality and that safety of, of an app because it can do harm. And we've seen plenty of examples of apps that have caused harm. And people assume, oh, because you're not ingesting anything into your body, like it can't cause as much harm. But there have been plenty of examples and we won't go into them in in this discussion. But there's always a risk-benefit discussion to be had with those sorts of things. And so I think I would love to see that future state where health is just health. It's Before you go, just a reminder to jump over to our YouTube channel and subscribe and watch some episodes there. There are podcast episodes, summit sessions, and a bunch of other interesting content on our channel. You can just search Talking Health Tech in the YouTube app or click on the link in the show notes of your podcast player and it should just take you straight there. Thank you. Whether it's telehealth, remote care, remote patient monitoring, whether it's digital therapeutics, it's all just healthcare. And that's it for this and Health Summit feature episode of the Talking Health Tech podcast, where we focused on digital therapeutics. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can hear our next session in the coming weeks that we recorded at a live event. We've got a few of them coming up. And also make sure you check out andhealth.com.au. There's a number of useful resources for all different stakeholders in the digital health ecosystem here in Australia and abroad. And Health are great partners of Talking Health Tech and worth a look. So hopefully we see you at their next summit or event really soon. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. Make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast player and for more information, visit talkinghealthtech.com.